0: Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible, and we'll get right to it on this Wednesday night. Thanks for coming to our service here online, Church at Home. Uh, This evening, we're going to be covering some more chapters in Isaiah. So why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah 26 for this evening's study. Isaiah chapter 26. Sometimes I like to ask the question, are you a tourist or are you an adventurer? You know, I remember as a little kid, when I first saw the Indiana Jones movies, I was blown away at what an adventurer looked like, and as he would go into the deep caves and figure out, you know, the Latin or the Greek, and, you know, all those interesting uh, trips that he went on, and, and excuse me, and sometimes I kind of liken that to the, the church person. You know, there's the guy with the, you know, the Hawaiian shirt with the Hawaiian lei and a camera, and you know, uh, Bermuda shorts and knee-high, you know, socks and run around being a tourist. And you just go see things just kind of on the surface, or you can dive deep. And really, I'd love to have us be adventurers, you know, where we really dig deep in the Scriptures. And, and also, um, you know, instead of being a tourist, to be a tour guide, to know about the Scripture. You know, wouldn't it be great if when you went to heaven— um you know, if you were able to give tours when you get to heaven. Oh, you know, here's the 4 and 20 elders that we see in Revelation, you know, chapter 4 and 5. And we could talk about, you know, that and tell people where they're, what they're seeing. Because some people they are going to get to heaven, I believe. They might smell like smoke, uh, they'll, but they'll make it. They'll get there. Uh, praise the Lord for that. But, uh, you know, as Bible students, we get to know a little more and dig deeper. Um, so let's see how you do. Who was the, f- the greatest financier in the Bible? That's a good question for you to think about. Answer, Noah. When he was floating his stock, he was floating his stock while everyone else was in liquidation. Ha, there, there's a Bible trivia for you. Here's another one. What kind of man was Boaz before he got married? The answer, ruthless. Get it? Ruthless? <laughs> okay, one more. Uh, who was the first drug addict in the Bible? Answer, Nebuchadnezzar, he was on grass for seven years. If you remember the story, sorry, that's a bad one. It was so bad. Let me give you one more. <laughs> what kind of motor vehicles do you see in the Bible? Well, uh, interesting. Yahweh drove Adam and Eve out of the garden in a fury. Uh, that's that Plymouth, you know, the. remember the Plymouth Fury? That was in the 80s. Um, and David rode what kind of vehicle? A triumph, a British motorcycle. Um, it says in the Bible, David's triumph was heard throughout the land. It must have had some straight pipes on it or something. Uh, here's another one. <laughs> um, what uh, what what scripture? Well, I'll tell you what scripture. Second Corinthians four eight describes a group traveling in a Volkswagen Bug. Uh, why? Because it says we are hard pressed on every side. <laughs> it must have been in a Volkswagen. Uh, you guys that are old enough to remember, I was the little kid who had to ride in the little back compartment of the Volkswagen. And that was that was a little snug back there when I was a little kid. But all that to stay, um, you know, the Bible uh, is full of great stuff. Not like that. that that's just goofy stuff. But I want to be the person that knows some of the nuanced stuff, you know, and and the stuff that's important. Now, when it comes to things in the future, Bible prophecy, Isaiah's got a lot to say. And Um, In the little, um, we've been calling this the little apocalypse, chapters 24 through 27 sort of deals with end times, and it it, uh, sprinkles end time themes throughout, and we've been looking at those. Of course, the first chapter there in in, uh, 24, we saw the destruction of the earth, and that's coming, and there's a bunch of different things that we see. The millennial kingdom, the seven-year period called the tribulation, we see uh, references to this coming world leader, Antichrist. And we also see, uh, as we saw on Sunday, um, a cryptic, uh, as it was a a message about perhaps the the tribulation and the rapture of the church and all that stuff. So we looked at that on Sunday. But let's pick it up in chapter 26, uh, where we left off last Wednesday. It says in verse one, "'In that day, this song shall be sung "'in the land of Judah, we have a strong city, Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye the gates that keepeth the righteous nation, which keepeth the truth may enter in. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. We looked at this two Sundays ago, verse 3. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And um, we kind of did sort of a little bit of a study, and, and we realized, wow, this is talking about the kingdom age. The person whose mind is stayed on thee, who is that? It's the person that's living in the kingdom period, when Christ is ruling and reigning in Jerusalem on the throne. This would be after the tribulation period. And so you say, well, great, Brett, I always wanted to apply that verse to myself right now. Can you do that? Can you apply a, a scripture like this that's for the kingdom period when Christ is here and there's an everlasting righteousness and a doing away with sin in the millennial kingdom? The answer, yes, you can apply this verse. And I'll tell you why. We talked about this a couple Sundays ago that remember Jesus talked about how the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is not, God is not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That peace that comes by the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. What Paul says? Don't you know that your body is a Holy Ghost a temple to the Holy Ghost? And and so we can have that perfect peace before Christ even rules and reigns on the throne. But individually, not globally, not nationally, we're not going to see that. But wouldn't that be nice? Do you get a sense that we need perfect peace in this on this earth on this planet right now? Man, things are up and is as much turmoil as I've seen in my lifetime globally, Um, whether it's the pandemic or the economy that's tanking because the pandemic or racism or the results of riots because of racism. Um, The, you know, it's interesting because um, right now everybody's, you know, wanting to do away with the police. Um, I was thinking about this today. You know, I, I have a hard time picturing what the world would look like without police. Uh, I, it makes me a little nervous. But did you know the millennial kingdom won't need police? The answer? Because there's an everlasting righteousness. Did you see what it said in our text here? And I'm sorry, law enforcement officers, but you're not going to be you know, walking the beat or, or anything. Uh, if you're a police officer, I don't believe we're going to need that in that time period because Christ is going to rule and reign. And it says here, we have a city, a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and for bulwarks. The idea is, we're going from literal walls uh, and bulwarks and weapons. The well, you know, weapons of our warfare are carnal weapons. The Bible says, but in the kingdom age, salvation's going to be our wall. People say, well, is Trump going to build a wall here in Portland? Did you see they had to build a wall? <laughs> I thought it was interesting. They built a big wall around the, um, you know, the city hall because they were spraying graffiti on the marble outside and it was really hard to get the graffiti off of that uh, really old marble. And so they built a wall to keep everybody out. I thought that was interesting that Portland, of all places, built a wall to keep people out. But in the kingdom age, uh, there's not going to be a need for a wall. Why? Because this, the wall is our salvation. Christ and his salvation that he gives to us. That's all we'll need in the millennial kingdom. And, and we're going to be singing that song, God will appoint walls and, and what is that? The wall of salvation. Uh, open the gates, he says, um, because the keeper of the truth may enter in. That's, that's gonna be that. And we're gonna be kept in perfect peace during that time period. Man, that's where the Bible says, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. That's where the little child could handle, handle a deadly serpent you know, and, and be okay it won't, it won't kill them. Um, there's just gonna be an everlasting peace and righteousness that's coming according to the Bible. Um, and God will be our salvation. So I love verse four. It should be marked as well as verse three, but verse four, trust ye in the Lord forever. How long should we trust the Lord? Forever, that, that means starting right now and forevermore, trusting in the Lord forever. For in the Lord, Jehovah is everlasting strength. Um, I love that. The everlasting strength, if you look at your margin there, it says, um, the Rock of Ages. That's where we get that concept of Rock of Ages, cleft for me. You know that old hymn. It comes from this this idea that He's Jehovah, the everlasting strength, or the Rock of Ages. Man, I love that He's the immovable, unshakable Rock. One of the things when we talk about the Rock of Jesus Christ, by the way, um, it's really important that you make sure that you have the the you're coming from the correct um, perspective on this idea. of of the rock. You know, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, uh, the scriptures teach that, um, Jesus is the rock and he's either like Jesus talked about, he said, um, I will either be the rock that you'll be broken before, or I'll be the rock that you'll be broken by. He's either the rock of, of ages that you get to stand on and have as a sure foundation, or he's a rock that crushes Daniel chapter 2, there's a prophecy that Nebuchadnezzar saw where the rock, cut without hands, that's Jesus, comes tumbling down the mountain and smashes the nations of the world. That's going to be at the time of, called the Battle of Armageddon. And then he's going to set up his everlasting kingdom. The rock sort of grows into be a mountain, and it's an everlasting mountain. Um, so depending on what side of the rock you're on, he's either a rock of offense, a rock of stumbling, a rock of crushing, or he'll be your rock of security and stability and foundation. And it all has to do with whether or not you're saved. If you're a Christian, if you've chosen to follow Jesus as your savior, if you accept him and believe in him. And so here in our text here in Isaiah, man, we've got this this kind of idea of the rock of ages there in verse four. I love that. Well, verse five goes on. He says, for he bringeth down them that dwell on high, the lofty city, he layeth it low, He layeth it low, even to the ground. He bringeth it even to the dust. The foot shall tread it down, even the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. The way of the just is uprightness. Thou, most upright, dost weigh the path of the just. Yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Lord, have we waited for thee. And The desire for our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. With my soul have I desired thee in the night; yea, will I, uh, will my spirit within me, will I seek thee early? For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. So Isaiah is sort of meandering back and forth, you know, to from his time to uh, future times to the millennial kingdom, and he's sort of, sort of um, meandering in his thoughts about. The, the way of the wicked and he first starts talking about how the lord's going to crush the cities that are wicked and people will tread underfoot you know the the, the great cities um, that's that's uh, you know it's like uh, the book of revelation says babylon has fallen and it's going to fall in less than an hour it's it's like the bible says it's just going to be crushed whatever that means. And we, we talked about that. We'll talk more about that as we get into the scriptures further. But, but, um, but then we are waiting for the judgments of the Lord. That's, that's the thing. Now, verse eight is important. Yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Lord, we have waited for thee. The desire of our soul. This is something that I sometimes think about, where it says, the desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. Does your soul long for the Lord? like the psalmist, oh, my soul longs for thee, O God. As the deer pants for the water, so does my soul long for you, O God. Like, do you have that kind of a heart for the Lord, where you just long to be with the Lord, to commune with the Lord? Um, I, I, I sometimes have to think about that because it's so easy to get going in this lifetime where, you know, we have all kinds of Christian things we do, and, uh, and surely, you know, uh, faith without works is dead. So yeah, we'll do stuff. That's going to be the mark of the true believer is to, to actually have good fruit in their lives. But one of the things that can be really dangerous is to have all kinds of deeds that you do. You may have marched. You may have protested. You may be doing something, which is great. If the Lord's called you to that, that's important. But everybody's called to that. Be careful on that one. Um, Everybody needs to do what God's called them to do. But the thing that I worry about is sometimes we get so busy doing and thinking we have to step into action and we have to do this and that. And it's all about do, do, do. But we forget it's, it's the longing of the Lord. It's a relationship with God. I see marriages, by the way, that do this. Have you seen the husband? That his love language is to work really hard, make some money, buy a house, get a house for his wife and for his kids. But he doesn't have a real relationship with them in his way of just saying, man, I work hard and this is my expression of love for you. Uh, good luck finding me to talk to me. When I get home, I'll sit and watch, you know, TV. Uh, but I, I'm not going to have intimacy or conversation or uh, relationship with you because I'm doing a bunch of stuff for you. It reminds me a little bit of the church at Ephesus. In the the message to um, the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation chapter two and three, remember the Ephesians were busy doing. Lord, the Lord says if the church in Ephesus, I know your works and I know your labor. How you've tried those people that are say they're of the same doctrine but are not. You know the people of Ephesus were doctrinal Nazis almost. Like they're like we're not going to let anybody have wrong doctrine, and if they, they would literally give people tests, and if you couldn't pass the test doctrinally they kick you out of the church. That was the church at Ephesus. So they were hardcore, man. And Lord says, "I know your work, and I know all this stuff. I see all that stuff. But I have this against you that you've left your first love." Christians, we got to be careful not to just be busy about the work, but to remember the huge part, the most important part, It was Martha that was busy washing dishes, cooking up some food. And it seemed like such a logical thing. Jesus is their guest, they gotta be busy. Busy, busy, busy. And so Martha was buzzing around the house. Mary was just sitting at the feet of Jesus because she longed to be with them. And Jesus, you know, when Martha's like, I need some help from her, get her you know, off, off the floor and have her come help me with it. But Jesus said, Martha, Mary has chosen the greater thing. I wonder, if in this current climate where everybody's telling you what to do about racism or what to do about social injustice. And, and I do believe we need to be doing things culturally, governmentally, we need to fix the problems. I, I totally believe that and it's something I pray for every day. But I hope we don't lose in all the emotional, you know, uh, um, height that we've allowed this to get to, that we don't forget to just love Jesus with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're called to love Christ and to follow him as our bridegroom. And, and, uh, and you know, not to be the Martha all the time, but to, to be people that are saying, man, in these dark days, what we're gonna do, instead of buzzing around, we're gonna spend a lot of time at the feet of Jesus. Oh, well, what a waste spending time at Jesus's feet. Some people might even tell me that tonight, Brett, you should be more busy doing, doing, doing. Jesus might just say, those people have chose the better thing. Um, it was Judas that criticized her as she broke that expensive box of ointment on Jesus's feet. It was Judas who who said, we could have used that money to spend it on the poor and the needy, but he didn't really care about the poor and needy. Um, he was actually a thief and just wanted to pocket the money for himself. Jesus knew all this, and he said, leave her alone. She's done this to, to the, the, the day of my burial, like she's actually, you know, doing the right thing that actually matters. Worship is oftentimes criticized. People that are passionate for Christ and love Christ and worship Christ, there's always the Judas who will be out there criticizing worship and people that are passionate for Christ. But man, I think that maybe in this day, take a deep breath and say, Lord, I know that I might have to be doing something and, and, and to be wait, waiting and patient and saying, Lord, show me what to do. But I also think that you gotta be this one who says, with my soul, verse nine, have I desired thee in the night? Have any of you been sleepless during these days with all the, the crazy stuff going on? Have you lost some sleep over this? Some people have, I, I know I have. And um, what do you do when you are sleepless at night? Do you just lay there angry because you're not going to sleep? One of the things you could do is this little verse nine, it says, my soul, says, I've, I've desired thee in the night, yea, With my spirit within me will I seek thee early. He says, I'm going to just seek the Lord early. Get up early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. That's the hope that we have. Will we ever learn to conquer racism? Well, the answer is yes, for sure, during the kingdom, for sure. Wouldn't it be nice if we could get rid of racism earlier than that? The problem is you always have sinful people on this earth. And it's going to be a long, hard, you know, deal to get that solved. And, you know, the, the question is, is there systematic racism in law enforcement? And is there, you know, and, and there's, there's evidence like in the deep South of judges and, and, you know, death row and some of those things that, you know, in our, in our history that have shown some really ugly things. Is that ever going to be solved or ever going to get the racism out of people? Um, and yes, we do need to work on that. But it says here, then when the Lord comes, then thy judgments are in the earth and the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. The Bible tells us it's actually going to be an enforced righteousness. And it's not, it's not going to be you know, enforced with like, you know, the same kind of enforcement that we have now. It's going to be very different. But it's going to be those who believe in God, those who are ruling and reigning with Christ, that's gonna be us. And it's gonna be a different kind of deal. Uh, The kingdom's gonna be a glorious time. So when you find yourself discouraged by the current day that we're living in, we, number one, have to thank the Lord that he's coming and that Christ is gonna rule and reign. He's gonna fix all this. But until then, we have to pray and say, Lord, show us what to do. Show us how to deal with this. And don't ever forget to keep Christ at the center, at the feet of Jesus, not just being a busybody, Fighting social injustice—that's that's a good thing. If you if you're called to that, if the Lord's shown you what to do, but don't just forget the more important thing—to love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Verse ten says, "Let favor be shown to the wicked; yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, will he, uh, will he deal unjustly, and will not behold." the majesty of the Lord. Lord, when thy hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they shall see. And be ashamed for their envy at the people. Yea, the fire of thine enemies shall devour them. Um, It's it's basically saying eventually everyone's gonna see. Oops, we are wrong. Jesus is the righteous one. Uh, Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's gonna be no one who will be able to say, hey, that wasn't fair. Everybody's gonna get it eventually. But until then, man, what's gonna happen? Well, the idea is, um, the, you know, the Lord's, when, when the Lord's hand is lifted up, they won't see it. Uh, they, when they, when they, see, they won't see the judgment and the wrath of God that's coming. They'll be shocked when it happens. Um, it's almost like they're just plowing through life um, only to end up in kind of disaster. I was reminded of a story that I clipped years ago uh, that caught my attention. It was um, near Colinga, California. I remember driving our youth groups and school buses through that area uh, on trips that we went to, Mexico and other places. But Kalinga, um November 30th, 1991, fierce winds from a freakish dust storm triggered a massive freeway pileup on Interstate 5. Um, 14 people died, dozens more were injured as topsoil whipped up to a 50 mile an hour winds, and it resu- reduced instantly the visibility to zero on the freeway. Um, the afternoon craziness left the three mile trail of twisted and burning vehicles. Some stacked on top of one another. Even f- cars flipped off uh, the road a hundred yards off the side of the freeway, unable to see their way. Dozens of motor- motorists drove blindly ahead into the disaster, it says there. Um, I remember seeing that uh, news item thinking, I've seen dust storms down in that region, and man, it's, it's bad, but I kind of feel like that's what people are doing. They're just going 100 miles an hour right now with all their their stuff as they don't see the answers. They don't know what's going on, but I kind of feel like things are piling up and the stage is set for when Christ comes. That's really what this passage is saying, that uh, people are headed where they don't know. They're going, going there fast, uh, and yet, um, the Lord says, when I, when I lift up my hand, they will not see, but they will see. Um, and it's going to be kind of a crash. And uh, they're going to be devoured, it says here. That's what's going to happen. Bible says it. Lord said it. So he's going to do it. Verse 12 Lord, thou wilt ordain peace for us, for thou also hast wrought all our works in us. O Lord our God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us, but by thee only will we make mention of thy name. It says here other lords, notice the, the word Lord there is uh, little L. The first Lord in the verse 12 there is capital L, L, capital O, capital o, or R, capital D, because it's the word Jehovah. Um, but the second word Lord is just little letters there in verse 13. Uh, o Lord, our God, other lords, little l. Who are the little lords? Well, it says they, they've had dominion over us. Who is it that has dominion over us? Well, if you remember in the Garden of Eden, God gave man dominion over the earth. But one of the things Lucifer did there on the tree and the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, when he, uh, you know, tempted Adam and Eve and they sinned, they sort of handed that dominion over to Satan. It's almost like if you could picture a transfer of a title deed. And that's why the Bible says that, you know, Satan is the one who has dominion over this world. He's the one who's the God of this world. He's called the prince of this world. And it explains a lot. Um, You know, uh, in fact, the scriptures even talk about how the very cosmos is the Greek word. It says the cosmos has become the dominion of Satan. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, I love the New American Standard Version where it says the whole, world, um, the whole world's life is in the power of the evil one. And that's the thing, Satan has dominion over this earth. We handled, handed that dominion. Now, good news. Who is worthy to take the title deed back? Read the book of Revelation because that's where Jesus will take the title deed to planet Earth back from Satan. He's the only one who's worthy to loose the seven seals of the scroll, which is the title deed to planet Earth. So the plan is, Satan has dominion right now, but Christ is coming, and he's gonna take the dominion back. But it explains a lot. Satan does have power in this world. Now, I believe if you're a Christian, if you have Christ in you, man, guess what? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In other words, we don't have to freak out as Christians. There's too many Christians running around all heebie jeebied, freaked out, oh Satan's gonna get you. If you're a Christian, don't don't be worried like that. We can have that peace because Christ protects us, he guides us, directs us, he gives us strength, and the kingdom of God is within us, like we were talking about earlier. But at the same time, we are Christians living in a world where Satan has dominion. Are you a person who has Christ in you? Because if you don't, man, you're vulnerable. Uh, I rem- you know, People say, Brett, you, you don't have to worry about Satan gonna get you. Nope, we don't have to worry about it. But if you're not a Christian, you should worry <laughs> because Satan has dominion over you and demon possession is real and the the harm that Satan wants to do to you is real. I'm, I'm sort of reminded of a story in the book of Acts chapter 19. Let me just read it to you really quick here. It's It, uh, it kind of reminds you of how Satan can really mess with people. In Acts chapter 19... Verse 13, it says, Then certain vagabond Jews, exorcists, (laughs) took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. See, they saw Paul and Jesus doing miracles and delivering people from demons. So these dudes, vagabond Jews who thought they were exorcists, They went around and found demon-possessed people and said, we adjure you, we tell you to get out of there demons uh, in the name of Jesus who Paul preached. And then it says, verse 14, and there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jew and a chief of priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, now this is the demon talking back to them, okay, through this person. Uh, Was the head spinning and green vomit? Probably not. That's just the movies. But this demon-possessed person, Um, It says the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? (laughs) And the man in whom this evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That's craziness right there. There's a Bible story uh, to tell the kids as they're getting tucked in at night. Uh, <laughs> that's one of those kind of crazy stories. These sons of Sceva who were trying to cast out demons and they didn't know what they were talking about. They didn't know what they were doing. They were saying in the name of Jesus who Paul preached. Yeah, the guy that Paul talks about. But they didn't know Jesus personally. And they were trying to use it as some magical incantation to get these demons out like, uh, like it was some you know, formula. Are you known in hell? Does hell know you? Um, you know, I, I hear these demons in this story here in the book of Acts where they say, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but who are you? They didn't know who these sons of Sceva were because they weren't they weren't followers of Jesus and they weren't effective in what they were doing because they, they didn't have Christ. And they weren't being effective for the kingdom because they didn't have the right attitude and heart. You know, um you know, there's something that you should know that anyone who doesn't believe in Satan, all you gotta do is try opposing him for a while. <laughs> if, you, if you're a Christian, uh, you know, I've, I've noticed, it's really an interesting thing. You can almost track, the more effective Athey Creek is being as a church, the more we find ourselves attacked. I think where the enemy wants to mess with our church, and we're a target. Um, it's, it's interesting because 2020 in so many ways has been one of the toughest years of Athey Creek's history, um, for so many reasons, more than just the COVID virus and the, um, you know, the economy crunch and, and, uh, all this other stuff that's going on. We've had all kinds of things, you know, that have been hugely challenging, deeply troubling, but at the same time, we're seeing the Lord exponentially use this congregation and this fellowship more and more people getting saved, more and more people watching these live services online. Um, you know, the Prophecy Update, You know we got like 30,000 people who've just YouTubed that last Prophecy Update, just to see what's going on in the end times and in the world. Like to me, that's amazing, the reach that the Lord is giving uh, Athey Creek. It's, it's just kind of profound really, what the Lord is doing um, through this congregation. And it's, and it's by His grace, because we're just a bunch of goofballs who don't know what we're doing. Um, but but man, it sure is cool to be used by the Lord. The Lord chooses to use the weak and the foolish things in this world to confound the wise, and that's why we qualify <laughs> here at Eighthy Creek. But at the same time, I'm starting to get nervous when things are smooth and it's smooth sailing and everything's easy peasy. I start wondering: Are we known in hell? Are we a threat to demonic powers and entities? I hope so. And uh, and we we definitely feel that in this this 2020, it's been nothing but. Uh, that for us. It's been a battle. But it's not a surprise. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness and darkness that's in high places. It shouldn't shock us when we feel attacked. Now, again, personally, we don't have to freak out because demons can't possess you. I see Christians that are not demon-possessed, but I see them as (laughs) demon-obsessed. Some Christians go around, I think I got the demon of backache, or I got the demon in me, or this or that. That's, that's just dumb. Um, you know, where there is light, there can be no darkness. If Christ is in you, Satan can't coexist in your heart, in your life with Christ. I hope you know that. So the greatest solution is to be a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, an you know, effective minister of Christ. And uh, the enemy might attack you from without, but he'll have no power from within. That's the, the beauty of being a, a believer and a follower of Christ. Well, here in Isaiah 26, that's kind of what it's talking about. He says, O Lord, verse 13, our God, other lords beside thee have dominion over us, but by thee only will we make mention of thy name. It's the Lord alone, and it's his name. And boy, we could talk about the name of the Lord uh, as being all-powerful. But he goes on in verse 14. It says, they are dead. They shall not live, those who had dominion over Uh, the the people of Isaiah's time all the way through history. They are dead, they shall not live. They are deceased, they shall not rise. So these are the people, there'll be a a death that will not be to resurrection, uh, back to life. We'll talk about resurrection back to life in a second. Therefore hast thou visited and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. Thou hast increased the nation, O Lord, thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified, thou hast removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. Where is the Lord going to put these demonic entities who had dominion over us? The Bible tells us. After the thousand year millennial reign, he's going to take all those uh, who were uh, rejecting Christ, uh, the people, but also the demonic entities and Satan and and, uh, the Antichrist, the false prophet, all those guys Revelation chapter 20 tells us their end, and it's going to be where they'll stand before this throne, the great white throne. But those are the people. But Satan and his demons, they'll be thrown into Gehenna. That's the final place we call hell. Uh, We've done studies, by the way, on hell. And and it's important to know there's actually several places we sort of call hell. There's Gehenna, which is the lake of fire, and it's an eternal place. Once you're in Gehenna, you're there forever. And don't be dis, dis, disillusioned by people that teach of annihilism where you're basically annihilated, annihilated when you go to hell, you're thrown into the lake of fire, and you kind of vaporize into nothing. That's not what it says. The, Satan and his demons are going to be tormented night and day forever there. And I believe that's what the scriptures are going to say about people who've rejected Christ and have no salvation. They will go to hell. Uh, it's not me saying that, it's the Bible. And if you have a problem with that and you don't like it, it doesn't matter, hell's still there. And the thing that really matters is God has given you and me the way out to not go to hell, but to have everlasting life if you accept Christ and believe in him. It's so simple, but people are gonna miss it because they're stubborn and hard-hearted. I hope you're not one of those people. But these demonic entities, they're gonna be destroyed, they're gonna be put in hell and uh, they're never gonna raise up to eternal life. Um, Some people even try to say that, that people will go to hell, but eventually they'll work their way out of hell again and have another chance. Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, Different cults teach that. That's not true. Well, verse 16, it says, Lord, in trouble have they visited thee. They poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them. Like as a woman with child that dwelleth, uh, pardon me, draweth near to the time of her delivery, is in pain and cries out in her pangs. So have we been in thy sight, O Lord. Now, you Bible students, this is familiar language and it echoes back to Matthew chapter 24, uh, verse 8, where Jesus said, You know, all of these things are the beginning of sorrows. And the word sorrows there is birth pangs. Um, Paul the Apostle in First Thessalonians chapter 5 talked about how the, the end is going to be like birth pangs as a woman in travail with child. Isaiah is the first one who kind of uses that reference in context of Bible prophecy, right here. And it gives us sort of the flag that he's talking about, the future events in the end times, right here in verse 17. And verse 18, it says, "'We have been with child, we have been in pain, "'we have, as it were, brought forth wind, "'and we have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, "'neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen.'" You can almost say that verse 18 is where we are today, where we've tried, we've, we've, we've been in pain, we sense the birth pangs coming, but there's nothing, just wind. And um, the deliverance hasn't happened for the inhabitants of the earth. That's where we are right now, but it's gonna come. Verse 19, they, uh, thy dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they arise. awaken, sing ye that dwell in the dust for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. See, now we shift gears. The other people are not ever going to rise, verses 14 and 15, the demons and those that don't know the Lord. But there's a group of people, uh, thy dead men, the, that are the Lord's. What's going to happen? They're going to live. They're the, going to resurrect. Now, you've got to remember, Jesus is called uh, by Paul the Apostle. He says, Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. And that's important to know because um, if it wasn't for Christ, none of us could have the hope of, of resurrection. Um, but I love this. In fact, let me read to you. It says, um, For if the dead rise not, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, uh, let's see, let's, let's say fifteen sixteen. If the dead rise not, then it is not Christ, is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, you're yet in your sins. If Jesus didn't raise up from the dead, we might as well pack up our Bibles and go home and forget Christianity. Christianity, the the door of Christianity swings on the hinge of the resurrection of Christ. You take away the resurrection, our faith is null and void. That's what he's saying. You're still in your sins if Christ didn't raise up. Verse 18, then they which also are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are of all men most miserable. If if this is all there is, we're most miserable. That's the atheist view. This is all there is. And when you die, it's over. And Paul's right. If that's all we got, then you're most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and he's become the first fruits of them that slept or died. And then he goes on, for since by man came death, that's Adam, by man also came the resurrection of it. That's Jesus. For as in Adam all die, even so Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So here we're told that Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection. And because of Jesus raising up from the dead, you and I can look forward to resurrecting after we die. It's because of what Jesus did. Well, Brett, I don't think Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection. There's examples in the Bible of people who were raised from the dead. Lazarus himself was raised up by Jesus from the dead before Jesus was raised up from the dead. Only the problem with your thought there is Lazarus didn't stay alive. He went back to the grave. He had a short little extension, if you would. And that's true with all the Old Testament bringing back to life and all the New Testament raising the dead. But it was Christ as the only one who rose from the dead and stayed alive uh, eternal life through Christ. That's the only one. So don't be confused by that. Jesus is the first one who raised up from the dead to eternal life. That's the the first fruit of the resurrection. And that's what Isaiah is referring to here in chapter 26. He's talking about those that would raise up there, the dead men shall live um, and awake and sing that dwell in the dust. Man, that's that's gonna be us. If the rapture of the church doesn't happen, in our lifetime, which I think it very well could. It could be tomorrow, who knows? But if it doesn't happen, guess what? When you die, you will be raised up into eternal life because Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. Now, verse 20 and 21, we looked at um, in, uh, on Sunday, and we see a picture of the bride of Christ being raptured. It says, come, that's the word, come up hither, come up here, meditata, after these things, come, the Lord said, come. That's the rapture of the church. Come, my people, enter into thy chambers. That's the bride chamber. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I live, you may live also. It's it's what the bridegroom would do, preparing a place. We talked about that on Sunday. And shut thy doors about thee, hide thyself as it were a little moment. Remember the bridegroom in a Jewish wedding and the bride would hide for how long? Seven days. And at the end of seven days, the bridegroom and the bride would reemerge and be seen by all. That's what's going to happen. Only instead of seven days, it'll be seven years. You and I, the church of Jesus Christ, raptured, hidden in the bride chamber while the wrath and indignation is poured out upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. Then after seven years, you and I return with Christ, and we emerge the bride of Christ, now the wife of Christ, if you would, and uh, ruling and reigning with him for, for the rest of eternity. That's the idea. So it says... Um, will hide there for a, a moment until indignation, God's wrath judgment, will be overpassed. For it says, verse 21, Behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. This world, you know, there's times where I just feel like there's just this gross, sinful stuff going on around us. And some of it's just really heartbreaking to see the wickedness of man. Um, I I, I saw on the news today, there was some protesters um, that were on the other side of the argument and some guy as the Black Lives Matter people were walking down the street protesting. Uh, Some other protesters, counter protesters uh, were demonstrating a reenactment of, um, you know, uh, George Floyd laying on the ground and the guy having his knee on the neck. And uh, I just thought, you know, that's just pure wickedness and evil. That's the stuff that needs to be dealt with and done away with. And that kind of wickedness is just hard to even fathom. And and in some ways, I I look at stuff that goes on in this world, people just being horrible and mean and brutal and wicked. But understand, we should have a heart that's broken because, you know, that wrath of God's a coming. And uh, it's going to come on all those that reject Christ and those that are just you know, evil, wicked sinners. That's coming. People need to be saved. Um, on whatever side of the argument you're on, man, we have work to do. We we need to see people re- repent of their sins, turn to Christ, and be saved. That's our job. That's our number one goal. People are arguing right now about, you know, what are we doing? Um, should we be busy about this, that, or the other thing? And um, and some people are even criticized. You can't just, you know, have the gospel. Uh, I heard a pastor say this today and I was like, oh boy, you know, you, here's the problem. If you try to clean the fish before you catch the fish, Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. And, and one of the greatest things, you, 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 can't, you can't change a racist um, until their heart is regenerated. They need to be uh, broken, repentant, and turn to the Lord. That's the only way you're going to fix a racist. They need to repent of their sins and become a believer in Christ. Um, I really believe that until there's regeneration, you're not gonna have any improvement. There's gotta be a salvation. The gospel is the answer. I don't care what you think, Jesus is still the answer. And um, those of you that are making the argument, you can't just preach the gospel. Well, that's the only thing that's gonna work. Um, You can fix a person for maybe a few days and you might have external results for a short season. As it turns out, humanity has been horrible to each other. If you just know your history, uh, it's amazing how horrible history has been. If you know your history, you might even argue that even with our horrible things that we've done in our country, historically, there's been a lot worse in the history uh, that's been done to people, people groups and races and uh, horrible, horrible things. And before you can actually see any real improvement, I think a person needs to repent of their sins and be saved. That's That should be our number one goal as Christians. Jesus didn't, you know, give us the, the great commission to go out into all the world and protest. Jesus had gone into all the world and preach the gospel to all men, baptizing people, making disciples. That's what we're called to do. You know, I think that um, of all the things Martin Luther King Jr. did, um, I think whenever he was able to bring The notions of Jesus into his speeches, those were the most powerful speeches. Whenever Martin Luther King was talking about Jesus, talking about the word of God and about love and forgiveness and the grace of God, whenever he talked about that stuff, those were some of his most powerful and effective speeches. Um, You know, it's an interesting thing how we get caught up on other things. It's all Jesus. It really is. And I'll go down fighting for that one Uh, and maybe I'll just go down, but I will keep fighting for that. It's Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Um, It's what we need to be talking about. It's what we should be focused on. Well, that's coming. The Lord's going to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. It's going to happen. Verse 1 of chapter 27. In that day, the Lord, with his sore and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Can anybody guess who this is talking about? <laughs> it's funny because the word Leviathan there is kind of an interesting one uh, that some people kind of see um, uh, sort of a uh, you know dinosaur type creature or a dragon. And that, that's really the idea. Satan is called the serpent, but he's also called the dragon. Uh, and actually, this verse, chapter one of 27, is, I think, the same verse, really, that John is talking about in the book of Revelation. Uh, jot this down next to that verse, Revelation chapter three, 13, pardon me, Revelation 13, one, let me read it to you. Here, he says, I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads, 10 hordes, and upon 10 hordes, 10 crowns, and upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. And the beast, which I saw, was like unto a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Um, and then it goes on and talks about the beast and the wound and all this stuff. But there's these crazy beasts in the book of Revelation, but Satan is this dragon uh, that's gonna empower the beast of the book of Revelation. But when we get to Isaiah, you know, Isaiah is giving us sort of that far view Uh, whereas John's giving us a nearer view to the end. So we get more detail from John. But I believe that's what he's talking about here in chapter 27, verse 1, how this dragon, Satan, is going to be ultimately destroyed. The Lord will slay that dragon that's in the sea. The sea, by the way, for you Bible prophecy buffs, um, usually is speaking of the Gentile nations. Um, in, a, in a sort of a metaphorical way. The, this great sea is a sea of people. And that's probably what's being referred to in the book of Revelation and also here in Isaiah 27.1. Verse two. In that day, sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. Fury is not in me who would set the briars and the thorns against me in battle. I would go through them, I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me and he shall make peace with me. He shall cause them that uh, come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Now, this is an interesting passage because we could really debate of when is this gonna happen? Uh, has it already happened? Is it happening? Is it going to happen in the future? And I think the answer to that is yes. <laughs> um, first of all, Israel became a barren land. You should know that. And um, I always like to refer people to Mark Twain's writings. Look it up on Google, Mark Twain's trip to Israel. He spent a year, a hundred and something years ago in Israel, back when it was just barren desert. There was nobody there. He says, I didn't see people for days. I didn't see one green weed or plant or twig. Everything was dry, desert, barren. He says it was, you'd hardly even see a person, a Bedouin once in a while in a tent with sheep. And and his description was accurate. And it really largely was due to the Ottoman Turk empire that really destroyed Israel, then called Palestine. Um, and it was, um, they were very destructive to the land. And by the chopping down of all the trees because of taxes You'd get taxed according to how many trees you'd have. And so the people of Palestine would chop down all their trees so that they wouldn't have to pay more taxes. And it changed the whole um, environment of Israel became this arid, dry desert. But what's even more interesting is um, then, you know, I think we've seen the prophecies of Ezekiel 36, you know, and 37 kind of come to pass where the Lord has regathered his people into Israel. The Jews came back, the Zionist movement, the world thinks the Zionist movement is evil. By the way, it's godly. God is the one who brought the Jews back to Israel. Read your Bibles. Uh, it's amazing the fulfillment of prophecy. It's amazing to me that people, even Christians, think the Zionist movement is evil. It's God bringing His Jewish people back to His land, and there's no doubt about it. It's the most sure prophecy that you can prove of all the Bible, and uh, and so not only did the Zionist movement bring the Jews back to Israel, but miraculously, Israel started to blossom. And we talked about this on Sunday. Remember the, you know, the prophecies of, you know, Matthew 24, the, 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 the generation that sees the fig tree blossom. That's the, the nation Israel blossoming. They're gonna, they're gonna, that generation is not gonna see death. And you know what, we're that generation, we're seeing Israel blossom, literally. Um, I was looking up some of the stats on Israel and and fruits and vegetables. Um, This is just from that bastion of truth, uh, Wikipedia. (laughs) Uh, This is interesting though. Israel, they say is, and the reason I like quoting from Wikipedia is because usually they tend to take a more hostile uh, approach to things of Israel and the Bible and all that. So you find something they say that's kind of interesting, but they said Israel is one of the world's leading fresh citrus producers and exporters, including oranges, grapefruit, tangerines, and uh, pomelette, uh, a hybrid of grapefruit and a pomelo. It's They were developed in Israel. More than 40 types of fruit are grown in Israel in addition to citrus. Uh, they include avocados, bananas, apples, cherries, plums, nectarines, grapes, dates, strawberries, pic- prickly bear, or Zabar, uh, as it's called, persimmon, uh, loquats, pomegranates. Israel's the leading producer of uh, loquat after Japan, uh, top one in the world. Uh, in 1973, two Israeli scientists, Haim uh, Rabinovich uh, and Nahum Kedar, developed a variety of tomato. And this is when you go to Israel, you're going to be shocked at how good the fruit and vegetables are in Israel. Um, it's amazing how, how good. There's reasons why it's so good there. But one of the things, they, they developed this variety of tomato. Um, basically, um, they their research led to the development of the world's first long shelf-life commercial tomato variety. Uh, they transformed agricultural economies in Israel, promoting uh, the export of the vegetables, seeds, and the move to high-tech farming. Israel in- invented radical drip irrigation systems to turn the desert back into life. And and so it's an amazing thing. You and I, in our generation, I'm not even talking about the May 14th, 1948, when Israel became a nation again generation. I'm talking about right now, you and I are seeing in the last several decades, the land of Israel blossom like crazy. Uh, it's one of my favorite things as we drive through Israel on our tour buses. As we go through, you'll see farms and kibbutzim uh, they're full of um, you know, vegetables and bananas. And, and then at dinner time you'll have fresh fruit and veggies right off the ground of Israel. By the way, um, the reason why fruit tends to be sweeter from Israel, science has figured this out. The land has, the, the soil has a high salt content. And by the Jews sort of forcing the desert to become a place to grow crops again, um, one of the things that, that's happened is the fruits and vegetables have sort of, uh, I forget the scientific term, but, um, you know, they've sort of adapted to that soil process. And because the, the vegetable plant and the fruit plant has had to adapt to a higher salt content in the soil, it produces a fruit that actually has a sweeter taste. Um, and, and that's why people want fruits and vegetables from Israel, because it's just, it's sweet. Isn't it funny that Emperor Hadrian, one of the things he did, by the way, to spite the Jews, along with renaming Israel to Palestina and changing the name of Jerusalem to Aelia Capitolina um, and telling if two Jews are seen talking in Jerusalem, kill them, you have the right to kill them. That's Hadrian. One of the other things he did though, to make the Jews not live there anymore is he took the farmlands of the Jews and salted their land with salt so that they could not grow fruit and vegetables in their lands anymore. And sure enough, after Hadrian, you know, then all those nations came through uh, after the Romans and the Byzantines and the Ottomans and all this, the Brits, and it ended up being just desert barren. But isn't it amazing what Satan means for evil? Now the salty soil of the the Israeli area, it's actually turned out to be the biggest blessing. That's how God works. That's how the Lord rolls. Is just blessing in spite of bummers. Um, But that's just Israel. Israel is a constant reminder of God's mercy and grace and his existence. If you wanna know two words that really are proof of God's existence, I would say the Jews. If you read what the Bible says will happen to the Jews, it's happened. And the Bible has been spot on in tiny minute detail. Um, There's no doubt about it that Jews are God's chosen people. Isn't it amazing that a lot of the church doesn't even recognize the Jews as God's chosen people anymore and they're missing all the fun to see what God is doing through the nation Israel. I hope you understand that. Well, don't be duped by these other people who say God's finished with the Jews and the church has replaced Israel. It's called replacement theology. Run for your life. That is not a biblical um, doctrine or teaching. Well, all that to say, Um, it says here that the Lord's gonna cause them, verse six, come of Jacob to take root and Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. That's happening right now. Now, I believe that's also gonna happen during the millennial kingdom when Christ rules and reigns forever. Verse seven, hath he smitten him as, as he smote those that smote him? Or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? In measure... When it shooteth forth, that will debate with it. He stayeth as rough wind in the day of the east wind. By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. Jacob is another name for Israel. And this is all the fruit to take away his sin. When he maketh all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in sunder, the groves and images shall not stand up, Yet the defense city shall be desolate, and the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. There shall be uh, there shall the calf feed, and there shall be shall he lie down and consume the branches thereof. When the boughs thereof are withered, they shall be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he that made them will not have mercy on them, and he that formed them will show them no favor. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt, and ye shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. So this is talking about the Lord and what he was going to do to a rebellious nation, Jacob, or Israel, um, and, but he would not completely, he made a, an everlasting covenant with them. And some of the promises were based on his promise keeping it. Other of the promises were based on the Jews keeping their promise. They didn't do so good. But before we're too hard on the Jews, we've not done so good either. That's why Jew or Gentile needs to be saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is still the only way for Jew or Gentile. But this is the, these are those who would go through times of God's wrath um, these the Jewish people. Verse 13, And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which are ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount of Jerusalem. Okay, so there's a couple things here. Remember uh, back in chapter uh, 19 of Isaiah, we saw how shockingly, Assyria and Egypt would end up on the right side of the battle after the battle of Armageddon. Do you remember this? Of all people, the Assyrian people or that region of the world or the Egyptians, they're going to be on the friendly side of Israel at some point in the future, which is shocking. Uh, You have to go back and listen to chapter 19 or read chapter 19. It's kind of an amazing part of that story. But it's going to happen at the end uh, when Christ comes and rules and reigns. Now, Some people try to say, verse 13 is the trumpet that we talked about last Sunday. And you always have to really be careful with the trumpets when you're talking about the last days, because there's several trumpets that are blown. And interestingly, most of the time, not in this case, but most of the time, it tells us which trumpet is blowing and when. For example, there's the trumps of angels in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19, where there's the six trumpets that are blown of judgment and wrath. We saw the trump of God, uh, that's in First Thessalonians chapter uh, four, and uh, talking about the rapture of the church. And some people try to say, "Well, this is the great trumpet, and look what happens." Verse thirteen, it says, "Will be blown, and they shall come, which are ready to perish in the land of Assyria, the outcast land of Egypt, and they shall worship the Lord at the holy mount of Jerusalem." When's that going to happen? The millennial kingdom. Well, when's that going to happen? See, that's where people say the trump of the rapture is gonna happen at the end of the tribulation because of this. I can see how people would say that, but you gotta look more closely. There's another trumpet, a great trumpet, that's gonna be blown, and that's in Joel. The prophet Joel talks about this. Joel chapter two, verses 15 and 16. It says, blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast and call a psalm assembly. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation and assemble the elders and the children, those that uh, suck the breasts, let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. This is where Joel talks about another trumpet. There's a trumpet that's blown when the Lord takes his bride to be with him in the chamber that we talked about last week. But there's another trumpet that's going to come and sound when Christ returns returns with his bride. And I, I would call that the trump that Joel is talking about here. And I believe that's the same Trump. That's being talked about here in Isaiah chapter 26. I know that's a quick explanation for something, but you can look it up and check it out. Be real careful when you talk about the trumps as it relates to the last days, um, because uh, the trumpets are important. Um, a great brother in our church sent me this funny picture. I don't know if I want to out him, uh, but he was hilarious. He was sitting in a con- red convertible car, sports car, with his trumpet uh, in hand, because remember I was talking about how do you know you're obsessed with Bible prophecy? You always keep your convertible top down. You get uh, you get goosebumps when you hear a trumpet sound. And he's there driving his convertible with his trumpet. It was a great shot. I thought it was hilarious. Um, but uh, that's exactly what's going to happen. The trump will sound, and we will be taken to be with the Lord. All of these things Isaiah is talking about has to do with the the apocalypse coming. Isaiah's Uh, 24 through 27, the little apocalypse, and that is a wrap on that. We'll pick up chapter 28. You're saying, well, what's that all about? Woe. Woe after woe. It's going to be kind of a dark, depressing section, but wherever there's a woe, there's a way out of that woe. Um, Christ prepares the way of escape for anyone who's under the woes that we're about to read in Isaiah. Some of you might be saying, "Bro, we need to get out of Isaiah. Where we're at in the Bible is where we're at in life, and we've got a lot of burden of the Lord and woes that we're going through right now." Yep, we need to get through Isaiah uh, (laughs) because this this woe section it's kind of heavy. I'll warn you ahead of time, but we'll read that next week. Let's pray together. And Lord, we're so thankful for Your Word; it's living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray, Father, that You give us understanding. Lord, that we wouldn't just leave our study time here and with this right now, but Lord, that we'd um, continue to dig deeper and pursue the scriptures even more. Um, Lord, I pray that this would just be a springboard for further study. Um, Lord, your word is layer upon layer, truth upon truth, and we really do love searching the scriptures. So bless your people tonight as they've spent this time in your word. May it bring forth good fruit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.